Parts five and six of Tale three of Five Tales by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by David Wales. He awoke feeling as if he had eaten heavily overnight instead of having eaten nothing, and far off, unreal, seemed yesterday's romance. Yet it was a golden morning. Full spring had burst at last. In one night the goldy cups, as the little boys call them, seemed to have made the field their own, and from his window he could see apple blossoms covering the orchard as with a rose and white quilt. He went down almost dreading to see Megan, and yet when not she but Mrs. Narracombe brought in his breakfast, he felt vexed and disappointed. The woman's quick eye and snaky neck seemed to have a new alacrity this morning. Had she noticed? So you and the moon went walking last night, Mr. Ashurst. Did ye have your supper anywheres? Ashurst shook his head. Oh, we kept it for you, but I suppose you was too busy in your brain to think of such a thing as that. Was she mocking him in that voice of hers, which still kept some Welsh crispness against the invading burr of the West Country. If she knew, and at that moment he thought, no, no, I'll clear out. I won't put myself in such a beastly false position. But after breakfast the longing to see Megan began and increased with every minute, together with fear lest something should have been said to her which had spoiled everything. Sinister that she had not appeared, not given him even a glimpse of her. And the love-poem, whose manufacture had been so important and absorbing yesterday afternoon under the apple-trees, now seemed so paltry that he tore it up and rolled it into pipe-spills. What had he known of love till she seized his hand and kissed it? And now what did he not know? But to write of it seemed mere insipidity. He went up to his bedroom to get a book, and his heart began to beat violently, for she was in there making the bed. He stood in the doorway, watching, and suddenly, with turbulent joy, he saw her stoop and kiss his pillow, just at the hollow made by his head last night. How let her know he had seen that pretty act of devotion, and yet if she heard him stealing away, it would be even worse. She took the pillow up, holding it as if reluctant to shake out the impress of his cheek, dropped it, and turned around. Megan! She put her hands up to her cheeks, but her eyes seemed to look right into him. He had never before realized the depth and purity and touching faithfulness in those dew-bright eyes and he stammered, It was sweet of you to wait up for me last night. She still said nothing, and he stammered on, I was wandering about on, on the moor. It was such a jolly night, and I've just come up for a book. Then the kiss he had seen her give the pillow afflicted him with sudden headiness, and he went up to her. Touching her eyes with his lips, he thought with queer excitement, I've done it. Yesterday all was sudden, anyhow. But now, oh, I've done it. 
the girl let her forehead rest against his lips, which moved downwards till they reached hers. That first real lover's kiss, strange, wonderful, still almost innocent, in which heart did it make the most disturbance? Come to the big apple tree to-night, after they've gone to bed. Megan, promise. And she whispered back, I promise. Then, scared at her white face, scared at everything, he let her go and went downstairs again. Yes, he had done it now, accepted her love, declared his own. He went out to the green chair as devoid of a book as ever, and there he sat staring vacantly before him, triumphant and remorseful, while under his nose and behind his back the work of the farm went on. How long he had been sitting in that curious state of vacancy he had no notion when he saw Joe standing a little behind him to the right. The youth had evidently come from hard work in the fields, and stood shifting his feet, breathing loudly, his face colored like a setting sun, and his arms, below the rolled-up sleeves of his blue shirt, showing the hue and furry sheen of ripe peaches. His red lips were open, his blue eyes with their flaxen lashes stared fixedly at Ashurst, who said, ironically, "'Well, Joe, anything I can do for you?' "'Yes.' "'What, then?' "'You can go away from here. Us don't want you.' Asher's face, never too humble, assumed its most lordly look. "'Very good of you, but uh, do you know I prefer the others should speak for themselves?' The youth moved a pace or two nearer, and the scent of his honest heat afflicted Asher's nostrils. "'What do you stay here for?' because it pleases me. Don't please you when I've bashed your head in. Indeed. Uh, when would you like to begin that? Joe answered only with the loudness of his breathing, but his eyes looked like those of a young and angry bull. Then a sort of spasm seemed to convulse his face. Megan don't want you. A rush of jealousy, of contempt and anger with this thick, loud-breathing rustic got the better of Ashurst's self-possession. He jumped up and pushed back his chair. You can go to the devil. And as he said those simple words, he saw Megan in the doorway with a tiny brown spaniel puppy in her arms. She came up to him quickly. Its eyes are blue, she said. Joe turned away. The back of his neck was literally crimson. Ashurst put his finger to the mouth of the little brown bullfrog of a creature in her arms. How cozy it looked against her! It's fond of you already. Ah, Megan, everything is fond of you. What was Joe saying to you, please? Telling me to go away because you didn't want me here? She stamped her foot then looked up at Ashurst. At that adoring look he felt his nerves quiver, just as if he had seen a moth scorching its wings. Tonight, he said, don't forget. No, and smothering her face against the puppy's little fat brown body, she slipped back into the house. 
Ashurst wandered down the lane. At the gate of the wild meadow he came on the lame man and his cows. "'Beautiful day, Jim!' "'Ah, tis brave weather for the grass. The ashes be later than the oaks this year. When the oak before the ash—' Ashurst said idly, "'Where were you standing when you saw the gypsy bogey, Jim?' It might be under that big apple tree, as you might say. And you really do think it was there? The lame man answered cautiously, I, I shouldn't like to say rightly that twas there. Twas in my mind as twas there. What do you make of it? The lame man lowered his voice. They do say, old master, Miss Narracombe, come and gypsy stock, but that's tellin'. Them a wonderful people, you know, for claimin' their own. Maybe they knew it was goin', and knew this feller longed for company. That's what I've a thought about it. Well, what was he like? He had hair all over his face, and goin' like this he was, lame as if he had a vittle. They say there's no such thing as bogies, but I've a seen the air in this dog standin' up of a dark night, when I couldn't see nothin' myself. Was there a moon? Yes, very full, near. It was only just risen, gold, behind them trees. And you think a ghost means trouble, do you? The lame man pushed his hat up. His aspiring eyes looked at Ashurst more earnestly than ever. Tis not for me to say, but tis uh, they been so unrestin'-like, there's things us don't understand, that's zartin for sure. There's people that sees things, too, and others that don't never see nothin'. Now, our Joe, you might put anything under his eyes, and he'd never see it. And them other boys, too, them rattlin' fellers. But you take and put our Megan there, where there's nothin'. She'll see it, and more, too, or I'm mistaken. She's sensitive that way. What's that? I mean, she feels everything. Ah, she seemed very lovin' and hearted. Ashurst, who felt color coming into his cheeks, held out his tobacco pouch. Have a fill, Jim? Well, thank ye, sir. She's one and on her, I think. I expect so, said Ashurst shortly, and folding up his pouch, walked on. Lovin' hearted. Yes, and what was he doing? What were his intentions, as they say, towards this loving-hearted girl? The thought dogged him wandering through fields bright with buttercups, where the little red calves were feeding and the swallows flying high. Yes, the oaks were before the ashes, brown gold already, every tree in different stage and hue. The cuckoos and a thousand birds were singing. The little streams were very bright. The ancients believed in a golden age, in a garden of the Hesperides. A queen wasp settled on his sleeve. Each queen wasp killed meant two thousand fewer wasps to thieve the apples which would grow from that blossom in the orchard. But who, with love in his heart, could kill anything on a day like this? He entered a field where a young red bull was feeding. It seemed to Ashurst that he looked like Joe. But the young bull took no notice of this visitor a little drunk himself, perhaps, on the singing and the glamour of the golden pasture under his short legs. Ashurst crossed 
out unchallenged to the hillside above the stream. From that slope afore, mounted to its crown of rocks, the ground there was covered with a mist of bluebells, and nearly a score of crab-apple trees were in full bloom. He threw himself down on the grass. The change from the buttercup glory and oak-golden glamour of the fields to this ethereal beauty under the grey form filled him with a sort of wonder. Nothing the same, save the sound of running water and the songs of the cuckoos. He lay there a long time, watching the sunlight wheel till the crab-trees threw shadows over the bluebells, his only companions a few wild bees. He was not quite sane, thinking of that morning's kiss and of to-night under the apple-tree. In such a spot as this, fawns and dryads surely lived. Nymphs, white as the crab-apple blossom, retired within those trees. Fawns, brown as the dead bracken, with pointed ears, lay in wait for them. The cuckoos were still calling when he woke. There was the sound of running water, but the sun had couched behind the tor, the hillside was cool, and some rabbits had come out. Tonight, he thought. Just as from the earth everything was pushing up, unfolding under the soft, insistent fingers of an unseen hand, so were his heart and senses being pushed unfolded. He got up and broke off a spray from a crab-apple tree. The bubs were like Megan, shell-like, rose-pink, wild and fresh. And so, too, the opening flowers, white and wild, and touching. He put the spray into his coat, and all the rush of the spring within him escaped in a triumphant sigh. But the rabbits scurried away. Part Six it was nearly eleven that night when Ashurst put down the pocket odyssey which for half an hour he had held in his hands without reading, and slipped through the yard down to the orchard. The moon had just risen, very golden, over the hill, and like a bright, powerful watching spirit peered down through the bars of an ash-tree's half-naked boughs. In among the apple-trees it was still dark and he stood making sure of his direction, feeling the rough grass with his feet. A dark mass close behind him stirred with a heavy grunting sound, and three large pigs settled down again close to each other under the wall. He listened. There was no wind, but the stream's burbling, whispering chuckle had gained twice its daytime strength. One bird, he could not tell what, cried, Bip-bip, bip with perfect monotony. He could hear a night-jar spinning very far off, an owl hooting. Ashurst moved a step or two, and again halted, aware of a dim living whiteness all around his head. On the dark, unstirring trees, innumerable flowers and buds all soft and blurred, were being bewitched to life by the creeping moonlight. He had the oddest feeling of actual companionship, 
as if a million white moths or spirits had floated in and settled between dark sky and darker ground, and were opening and shutting their wings on a level with his eyes. On the bewildering, still, scentless beauty of that moment he almost lost memory of why he had come to the orchard. The flying glamour which had clothed the earth all day had not gone now that night had fallen, but only changed into this new form. He moved on through the thicket of stems and boughs covered with that living, powdering whiteness till he reached the big apple-tree. No mistaking that, even in the dark, nearly twice the height and size of any other, and leaning out towards the open meadows and the stream. Under the thick branches he stood still again to listen. The same sounds exactly, and a fair grunting from the sleepy pigs. He put his hands on the dry, almost warm tree-trunk, whose rough mossy surface gave forth a peaty scent at his touch. Would she come? Would she? And among these quivering, haunted, moon-witched trees he was seized with doubts of everything. All was unearthly here, fit for no earthly lovers, fit only for god and goddess fawn and nymph, not for him and this little country girl. Would it not be almost a relief if she did not come? But all the time he was listening, and still that unknown bird went pip-pip, pip-pip, and there rose the busy chatter of the little trout stream, whereon the moon was flinging glances through the bars of her tree-prison. The blossom on a level with his eyes seemed to grow more living every moment, seemed with its mysterious white beauty more and more a part of his suspense. He plucked a fragment and held it close, three blossoms, sacrilege to pluck fruit-tree blossom, soft, sacred, young blossom, and throw it away. Then suddenly he heard the gate close the pigs stirring again and grunting, and leaning against the trunk, he pressed his hands to its mossy sides behind him, and held his breath. She might have been a spirit threading the trees, for all the noise she made. Then he saw her quite close, her dark form part of a little tree, her white face part of its blossom, so still and peering towards him. He whispered, Megan, and held out his hands. She ran forward, straight to his breast. When he felt her heart beating against him, Ashurst knew to the full the sensations of chivalry and passion. Because she was not of his world, because she was so simple and young and headlong, adoring and defenseless, how could he be other than her protector in the dark? because she was so simple, all nature and beauty, as much a part of this spring night as was the living blossom, how should he not take all that she would give him, how not fulfill the spring in her heart and his? And torn between these two emotions, he clasped her close and kissed her hair. How long they stood there without speaking he knew not. The stream went on chattering, 
the owls hooting, the moon kept stealing up and growing whiter, the blossom all around them and above brightened in suspense of living beauty. Their lips had sought each other's, and they did not speak. The moment speech began, all would be unreal. Spring has no speech, nothing but rustling and whispering. Spring has so much more than speech in its unfolding flowers and leaves, and the coursing of its streams, and in its sweet, restless seeking. And sometimes spring will come alive, and like a mysterious presence stand, encircling lovers with its arms, laying on them the fingers of enchantment, so that, standing lips to lips, they forget everything but just a kiss. While her heart beat against him and her lips quivered on his, Ashurst felt nothing but simple rapture. Destiny meant her for his arms. Love could not be flouted. But when their lips parted for breath, division began again at once. Only passion was now so much the stronger, and he sighed, Oh, Megan, why did you come? She looked up, hurt, amazed. Sir, you asked me to. Don't call me sir, my pretty sweet. What should I be calling you? Frank. Oh, I could not. Oh, no. But you love me, don't you? I could not help loving you. I want to be with you, that's all. All. So faint that he hardly heard, she whispered, I shall die if I can't be with you. Ashurst took a mighty breath. Come and be with me then. Oh! Intoxicated by the awe and rapture of that oh, he went on, whispering, We'll go to London. I'll show you the world. And I will take care of you. I promise, Megan. I'll never be a brute to you. If, if I can be with you, that is all. He stroked her hair and whispered on, Tomorrow I'll go to Torquay and get some money, and get you some clothes that won't be noticed, and then we'll steal away, and when we get to London, soon perhaps, if you love me well enough, we'll be married. He could feel her hair shiver with the shake of her head. Oh, no, I could not. I only want to be with you. Drunk on his own chivalry, Ashurst went on murmuring, It's I who am not good enough for you. Oh, Megan, when did you begin to love me? When I saw you in the road and you looked at me. The first night I loved you, but I never thought you would want me. She slipped down suddenly to her knees, trying to kiss his feet. A shiver of horror went through Ashurst. He lifted her bodily up and held her fast, too upset to speak. She whispered, Why won't you let me? It's I who kiss your feet. Her smile brought tears into his eyes, the whiteness of her moonlit face so close to his, the faint pink of her opened lips, had the living, unearthly beauty of the apple blossom. And then suddenly her eyes widened and stared past him painfully. 
She writhed out of his arms and whispered, Look! Ashurst saw nothing but the brightened stream, the firs faintly gilded, the beech trees glistening, and behind them all the wide loom of the moonlit hill. Behind him came her frozen whisper, The gypsy boogie! Where? There, by the stone, under the trees. Exasperated, he leaped the stream and strode towards the beech clump. Prank of the moonlight, nothing. In and out of the boulders and thorn trees, muttering and cursing, yet with a kind of terror, he rushed and stumbled. Absurd! Silly! Then he went back to the apple tree, but she was gone. He could hear a rustle, the grunting of the pigs, the sound of a gate closing. Instead of her, only this old apple tree. He flung his arms round the trunk. What a substitute for her soft body, the rough moss against his face. What a substitute for her soft cheek, only the scent as of the woods, a little the same. And above him and around the blossoms, more living, more moonlit than ever, seemed to glow and breathe. End of Parts 5 and 6